3: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website,
2: SolidarityBreakfast.org.au
7: Solidarity forever!
2: Good morning everybody on this blustery warm day. On, <laughs> we're spring, spring has sprung, it's 21 degrees and it's only early in the morning and uh, apparently it's going to rain. So there you go, that's Melbourne's weather. <laughs> You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, 3CR. Your uh, the good oil. The <laughs> we have to change that term. We're, we're the ones with the the uh, clear messages, it, it would appear politically. You weren't at the big rally yesterday. Do you want me to tell you about it?
8: Yeah, fill us in, Annie. Yeah, give us an update of the, the climate strike, of course. And there was a big, big crowd there. Yeah, yeah it
2: was huge, uh, and uh, uh hundreds of uh, thousands of people. Uh, well thousands of people, thousands of people there, uh, taking over the whole of Treasury Gardens. We did try and do a, a cross for uh, 3CR, but the problem was we did. We, our um, uh, ingenious, uh, one of my ingenious uh, uh, colleagues uh, actually stood with his phone, with his mic, to transmit the speeches. Uh, So we did actually achieve our aim, but it was a bit patchy. And the reason for why it was so patchy was because there wasn't a a consistent internet connection because there were so many people there and so many phones being used, apparently, that uh, that's the story, that uh, you couldn't actually uh, send a signal out. So it wasn't our technical incompetence Mm. because uh, one of our better techs turned up and they gave the same we had done all the things we were supposed to do so but anyway i did get a bit of a, a bit of sound from the day so uh and oh before we go on to that sound i thought I, it was worth noticing uh that uh, all the mainstream media appear to have uh all the newspapers at least have are playing down the uh, enormity of these uh, uh, gatherings. This was only in Melbourne, and I'm assuming there were big gatherings in other places as well. But you wouldn't know it from the uh, newspaper coverage.
8: No, again, football on the front on the front cover, rather than the 150,000 there that yeah. had to strike. yesterday. of course, led by uh, school children, so
2: yeah, that's uh, exactly the future is right. in good hands with those yeah, young activists. exactly. Um, so here we go. Why well,
8: we drink?
9: And I work at Fenner Dunlop in My workmates and I are currently out on strike for better wages and conditions, and we're here today to support the climate strike. Instead of dealing with our issues, Fenner Dunlop has gone to the Supreme Court to get an injunction against us. Taking workers like us to court is not going to stop us from standing up together. Svenna Dunlop is a multinational company owned by the Michelin Group. At Svenna Dunlop, our work depends on the coal mining industry, as we manufacture conveyor belts for coal miners. Me Me and my workmates care about better wages and conditions, but we also care about climate change. I know the work we do needs to move away from coal mining, but I'm here today because workers who work in these industries, like me, must have a say in what comes next. We need to make sure good, well-paid union jobs are at the centre of future clean industries. To build the future we all want, workers must be at the heart of economic and political decision-making. Together we must put the needs of workers and people first, not the interests of big business. The first step is recognising we're all in this together and we can all make these changes possible. Many people, just like me, are willing to change the times and transition our industries for the future. Together we must challenge big companies like the Michelin Group, who have the power to create well-paid and sustainable jobs for the future generations. Companies like the Michelin Group must put people before their profits. Let's stand together and demand a secure and sustainable future. We deserve nothing less. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much to our union speakers. We've just noticed that some people have started moving. It's not time to move yet. We still have one more speaker and then a call to action and then we will begin marching. So just hold on for a little bit longer. Now I'd like to introduce Thea from School Strike for Climate, who will speak now. Hey, bro. My grandma runs a farm, and my parents run a smaller one. This year, my grandma has used up all of her hay over the past summer, autumn, and winter because it has been such a dry season. Most people in the area have had a similar problem. This is because of a hay shortage in Victoria at the moment. Any hay left is poor quality and overpriced. drought leak organisations that once had plenty are now facing the same problems as those they're trying to support. What's more, the Bureau of Meteorology is predicting yet another dry season. This is a lesser case of the catastrophic climate and ecological crisis Australia is facing right now. And will continue to pace exponentially as we move into the future. In New South Wales and Queensland, it's not a drought, it's, a, it's not a dry season, it's a drought over two years long, sucking life out of once vibrant communities and leaving several places across Australia with absolutely no water left. It's the bushfires that are already beginning to rage across Australia. In September. It's Kiribati, Jakarta, Beijing, and New York, countries, capitals, and homes that will be underwater if we don't act. It's Queensland and New South Wales kids in drought-stricken communities facing the impossible choice of helping their family on the farm or studying as well as increasing poor mental health in kids in drought-affected areas. It's those affected by the ever-increasing conflict in developing countries across Africa and Asia caused by growing demand for resources. These resources are already diminishing and will continue to diminish because of climate change. It's my community and it's yours. In the world of Fred, we are in a climate and ecological crisis. And in mind, we are the children of Australia, the businesses, the workers, the parents, the colleagues, and the people. We call on every leader in Australia, Scott Morrison, Daniel Andrews, Susan Lane, act. Meet the three demands of. The Stop catastrophic climate and ecological breakdown. Save lives of people in developing countries. Save lives of people here at home. <laughs> in March fifteenth but the exact amount that turns up nationally across Australia in March
2: There you go, and it was a big crowd. Uh, interestingly enough, the Australian Financial uh, Times or Review is uh, reco- uh, saying on its front page, because it ignored the Global Climate Day of Action, uh, that Donald Trump and uh, Scott Morrison will sign off on Saturday today a plan to secure a stable supply of rare earths and other critical minerals, which could include the development of new mines in Australia as part of a continuing push to counter the rise of China. So that's obviously the uh, the rhetoric that the uh, big end of town is trying to push because, you know, all those pesky kids and workers uh, who aren't in the Hunter Valley who apparently are... Uh, a, holding on for dear life to the uh, destruction of uh, the uh, extractive industries. Uh, and on the front of that page, uh, they've got Be Afraid, Jeremy Corman's Radical Plans for Business, Be Afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious, huh? <laughs> anyway, that's, that's uh, what's going on in terms of... But there's something else happening today.
8: Yeah, there's a rally at uh, 1 o'clock at Federation Square, uh, Climate Crisis and War. A shout out for Peace and Climate Action. That's on today, Saturday 21st of September, 1, 1 pm at Federation Square. It's uh, hosted by IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. 1 o'clock today, Federation Square.
2: Yeah, this is celebrating international peace. A day, which is obviously not catching. But anyway, later on in the program, we'll be hearing from Vince Emanuel from America and uh, talking a little bit about uh, how underwhelmed the American population are at the idea of having to go to war with Iran. So there you go. Uh, but anyway, before we do, uh, we thought we might mention uh, uh, with Palpura. Outside uh, the, uh, last week, outside the um, coroner's court uh, where they were hearing the uh, case around uh, the death of Tanya Day O'Neill from the West Palpua group uh, was uh, given uh, space to talk to the crowd and it was really fascinating to see the uh, camaraderie between First Nations people uh, uh, you've got an update.
8: Yeah, I do. I've got an update from a, a comrade well, in West Papua. So yeah, let's well. hear
2: from uh, O'Neill first and then we'll get give you the West Papua update. My
5: name is O'Neill. Respect and solidarity to our brothers and sisters here. So, this flag, we're going to be arrested in jail in West Papua for 15 years because of this flag. West Papua is still occupied by the Indonesia at the moment. So, internet blockout. If you're curious about West Papua, they shut down the network and everything. No communication for all the students here. All West Papua students to talk to our family back home. They sent thousands of troops and then just yesterday we see this military trained by Indonesian, trained by Australian soldier in Finland Barrack, Western Australia. Same, our enemy is capitalism, let's destroy it together. So, at the end of this week on Saturday, we have solidarity with West Papua and uprising at the moment. Same as here. So far, more than 10 people, villages pass away because of military operation. Murder! It all happens. Started because they call us dogs and monkeys. At this age. So at the moment, we don't know what's happening in West Papua. But we're here. We stand together for the people who need all of us. One and one and another. We stand together. So, please, brother, help us each other. We all need each other until capitalism burns down. I want all of us to right show.
10: Always
5: watch. Always worse! Always watch. Always will be.
10: land, always was, always will be
0: Aboriginal
10: land.
5: Always was, always will be land. Always was, always
10: this will be be land.
5: land. This is never the right time for us to fight. Never. All the capitalism looking for land, and see ocean territorial. No matter where you go, from South America, Australia to Pacific Island community. All of our enemies are the same. So we need to work together as a community to fight it.
10: Always
5: watch! Always will be! Always watch! Always will be! Always watch!
10: Always
5: will be! be. Aboriginal land! Aboriginal land, yes! Alright, one more time, one more time. When I say Papua, you say Merdeka. Alright? Raise your left hand together. When I say Papua, you say Merdeka, alright? Papua. Merdeka. Papua! Merdeka! Papua! Merdeka! Papua! Merdeka!
10: Papua! Merdeka! Always was, always Merdeka. will be! Aboriginal land!
5: Thank you so much.
9: This is Iri Leke. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua
8: Merdeka gets up one talks.
2: And you've got an update?
8: Yeah, I've got an update from our uh, correspondent, I guess, if you like, in West Papua on the ground, and she says, uh, from Tamika uh, in West Papua, obviously, and she says Indonesian military are everywhere, including Tamika, there were protests in U- Yukimo and Yapan Island. That was yesterday or the day before, and she says uh, three of our male comrades were arrested in Yapan Island, and uh, at the moment there's no, no news of their return or where they are, so sure. solidarity to the people in West Papua.
2: And uh, a reminder of an upcoming event in support of West Papua. Rise, the morning star. Come
4: to a very special evening of music, dance and dinner. Joy of Freedom, Pacific voices sing out for West Papua. Celebrate the launch of the CD Joy of Freedom on Saturday the 21st of September from 6pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Entry is $15 and includes dinner. Performers include the Chandrawasi Dancers, Pacifica Victoria Choir... Corianne, Ann, the Black Sisters, Black Awkward String Band, Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat, and Tatame and the Neighbours. Because music is our weapon. More information at Facebook event Joy of Freedom, a 3CR supporter.
3: a 3CR supporter.
2: Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus. And uh, to go to something completely different. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I went to the uh, National a new international bookshop, and they have a series of uh, speakers, really interesting speakers. And this particular one is Lizzie O'Shea, and she has written this book that's got, oh, these fantastic titles. This is called Future Histories, What Ada Lovelace, Tom Paine, and the Paris Commune Can Teach Us About Digital Technology, which I thought was such a sweet title. She's uh, she's, uh, grasping at uh, the stars and uh, it was part of a talk around uh, uh, entitled Fighting the Digital Dystopia and considering that uh, the uh, mantra is that we're all about enhanced humans or robots and uh, automation, that uh, I thought this <laughs> might be of uh, particular interest to people. So here we go.
4: I think that we live in an age in which is saturated in pessimism uh, in which phenomena like climate change and uh, the democratic deficit and wealth inequality uh, threaten the lives of billions of people across the planet and right-wing populism is growing in its strength uh, and it's peddling fear and bigotry as answers to some of these problems and the appetite for the radical social transformation that might be necessary to address these problems often feels lacking uh, but I think there are notable exceptions to that and we're starting to see these come alive. So left-wing ideas are still popular, um, radical uh, alternatives to capitalism and its growth-centric model are now not looking just necessary, but in fact quite promising, uh, and uh, universal distrib- redistribution programs in social democracies have proven popular um, in major elections, and I think that's a very uh, exciting, um, these are exciting phenomena to pay attention to. Uh, and I think developments in digital technology sometimes give us the most exciting <laughs> (laughs) glimpses of all as to how this transformation might be possible and it shows really I think how human ingenuity and collaboration can um can demonstrate the potential to overcome these profound challenges by relying on people themselves. And that, I suppose, is my fear and my hope and the key motivation behind writing this text, that we're not making use of the potential of the digital revolution, and I I use that term with some uh, critical intent, but that it's also within our grasp to change that. And so what are the things that we might wish to do if we're to reclaim the power of digital technology for the many rather than the few? And so in that sense, it's worth, I think, mapping out the problem that technology is in our homes, it's in our pockets, and it's even under our skin, that it's invaded all our physical and psychological spaces, sometimes without our consent, sometimes without us even knowing. Uh, and. In that sense, it's often treated as a phenomenon that is without an agenda, that's unassailable and unstoppable, uh, that, that, is, that, that that's in society, I suppose, is an object that technology does things to rather than a collection of people with agency and a collective desire to shape their own future. Uh, And one of my favourite quotes, I suppose, when I was thinking about this topic comes from Karl Marx, which, if you know me, you'll realise that's probably like picking a favourite amongst your children, Um, but it's about the intersection of technology and progress, and he wrote, um, "...all our invention and progress seems to result in endowing material forces with intellectual life and stultifying human life into material force." And I think that quote uh, has renewed relevance in the 21st century, notwithstanding it was written 150 years ago. Um, And so one of the things I wanted to uh, set out in this book is that technology might be presented in that way, but it actually, um, it's not neutral. And in fact, there is a history that's both politically presented and one that we can claim for ourselves. So I want to start with the first thing there. Um, You know, I was looking at an article um, that I only touch on in this book, and I thought I would explain it a bit more fulsomely because it gives you an idea of what I'm getting at. Ben Horowitz, um, if you're involved in technology, you might know his name. He's a very influential venture capitalist. And he gives a presentation, and I've I've read a few of the books from these, these VCs and and technology leaders so that you don't have to um, but he, he gives a presentation where he talks about um, one of his icons from history who believe it or not is a man called Toussaint Louverture who was a leader of the Haitian rebellion so the only successful slave rebellion in human history um, and it's an exciting moment in Haitian history for a variety of reasons but what um, Ben Horowitz says about this is that um, if, if Toussaint could uh, overcome slavery, uh, defeat the French, the, um, the British and, and build a new society uh, as enslaved people, then his argument is you too can change the culture of your company and make it successful. <laughs> that's his claim. So he's making out that entrepreneurs and disruptors are the true inheritors of a radical and revolutionary tradition and that takes the form of innovative companies in coming out of Silicon Valley. Now, that's, I think, wrong, right? I actually... <laughs> I mean, I think um, Toussaint Louverture is a very exciting person from uh, our history but uh, not for the reasons that Ben Horowitz might give. So that's the kind of history that we're inheriting about technology that valorizes those who are powerful and who are making money from the technological revolution rather than others who are um, fighting for a more democratic future. So what I would say is that history does have a place in telling us about our present moment, but not if we use it in a frame that valorizes those who hold power in the 21st century, that actually we need to reclaim the past as a guide for creating a more democratic future you <laughs> Um, and, and that really, that's our, one of our best tools at our, at our disposal to avoid uh, the problems of the past and find inspiration from other political movements and thinkers who've come before us. So in that sense, to give you a bit of an idea, and I won't talk for too much longer, but, um, you know, we, I talk about Melvin Kranzberg and his idea that technology is neither inherently good nor bad, but nor is it neutral. And so that might be a frame that we should take to... Um, that we should use to understand companies that um, claim to be innovating, but in fact are bringing secure work to many millions of people. Um, we, th- I argue that perhaps we should never forget the Paris Commune that argued for a very practical form of individual liberty, of liberty of conscience and liberty of labour, and put forward some of the most democratic ideas... Um, That humanity has ever seen even by 21st century standards which look much more radical than the visionaries that are currently held up as being people we should listen to like Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg Um, I also argue that Ada Lovelace was uh, a person who bridged the impossible gap between uh, poetry and philosophy and was the first computer programmer and she um, was an incredible individual but she also happened to be a woman which meant that for a variety of reasons her innovations weren't recognised properly and also it took us a century really to catch up in terms of our development of digital technology and make use of that. Um, But that we have a lot to learn from her in how we can collaborate with others to produce wonderful things and interesting innovations rather than a potentially a great man of history type argument. And that's the um, claim here, that if um, you you may not know much about technology, but if you know something about history, you've probably got something to say about debates we have about technology today. And that's one audience that I wanted to speak to, people who aren't familiar with technology but are perhaps interested in politics and feel daunted at the prospect of intervening into technological debates, finding ways for them to do so and uh, to build that conversation. And on the other hand, we have large numbers of... um, people who are in the technology space and have, have, uh, are deeply aware and knowledgeable about these issues but are perhaps coming to politics for the first time and are looking for um, context and knowledge and traditions of thought and practice that might be relevant to the work that they see themselves doing in this political moment. And so I'm trying to build a bridge between those two worlds, which is um, where I want to finish really. Because...
2: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. And we're going to go to an uh, interview you did with uh, John Berger from the Transport, Workers, Transport Union. Workers Union. Yeah, which was quite a fascinating thing. And don't forget, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus.
8: This morning on Solidarity Breakfast, we're joined by John Berger, the Victorian Tasmanian Secretary of the Transport Workers Union. Welcome to the program, John.
1: Well, thanks very much for having me on.
8: No worries. Okay. The- Transport Workers Union, uh, they've been active in recent times, they've got a few campaigns um, going on, they've been leading a campaign uh, to protect owner-drivers through way of uh, recent legislation? Well, we've had a uh, campaign
1: going on for quite some years, and the position that we're in at the moment is that we've got a um, legislation in place that's going to assist owner-drivers going toward in the next few years, and um, the owner-driver forestry contact, Effect, which is the, uh, the determining um, regulatory authority that deals with it, has um, been in, in existence since 2005, and um, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's been a, um, a, a piece of legislation that hasn't quite adequately covered off all the things that we require, should, or you know, we think it should be covered off for owner-drivers in this state.
8: And what are some of the key points of, uh, of this legislation?
1: Yeah, well, there's some opportunities for iron um, drivers to collectively bargain as it has done in the past. But more importantly, when there's a dispute that arises through a, uh, an agreement, there's uh, an opportunity to have things arbitrated, which we've not had before. In Years gone by, it was only an opportunity for the parties to get together and um, have some mediation, with now with some meaningful outcomes from time to time. But now, when we get to a point where there's some significant differences between the parties, um, we can have the matter arbitrated on.
8: OK, and there's uh, protection surrounding payment to the owner-drivers too?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for, for the very first time, we've had um, um, an opportunity for owner-drivers to make sure they're paid within 30 days. Now, in years gone by, the uh, owner-drivers have had to um, produce their invoices and then it's, um, it's in the lap of the gods as to when they might get paid. In some instances, most companies might pay within 7 or 14 or 21 days, um, but there's other companies that don't pay, um, you know, significantly and you know, could be up to as much as uh, six months. And when you've got fuel bills and things of that nature that are outstanding, it makes it very hard to uh, run a successful business.
8: And if we look at the job of a truck driver, it's a dangerous industry. There's been multiple deaths this year on the road.
1: Well, there is. And, um, you know, our industry is one of the toughest and um, we've got the highest fatality in deaths in the workplace um, notwithstanding any other industry that's around. So uh, we're very mindful that um, if we can put some measures in place that um, help our truck drivers, whether it's through uh, taking appropriate uh, breast breaks, not having to speed and all that sort of stuff, um, then we can only um, hope that these measures um, assist uh, us and certainly the general public when they're travelling around.
8: And prior to the Coalition, uh, there was the Road Safety Tribunal. You'll need it. If we turn our attention to another campaign your union's been involved in, that's uh, the campaign to protect work, working in the uh, gig economy, which the union states is uh, uh, modern slavery.
1: Yes, well, the, um, the gig economy, you know, it's been around for some time now, and uh, some of you listeners might have seen uh, in the papers recently where America that some legislation in place to protect these people. Now, we've been fighting um, you know, these uh, the Ubers and the Fedoras, and well, actually, the Fedora's left the country now, um, given that they were caught out not paying their people properly and uh, you no know, entitlements, no entitlements such as workers' compensation and things of that nature, and uh, no penalty rates, um, you know, so nothing there to um, make sure that these people had a meaningful income uh, to sustain their um, their well-being. And you know, some of these these uh, push bike riders are getting five dollars an hour and things like that. You know, no one can survive on that and uh, nor should people be expected to.
8: So obviously the union there, uh, yeah, being active in recruiting those workers to the union?
1: Yeah, well, we're um, we're always looking to um, represent these people, and in fact we've done some unfair dismissals um, as test cases for people who aren't members of the union just to bring to the forefront that, uh, yes, you are being exploited, Um, and if you've been terminated for, uh, for no other reason, what they do is these people log on in the morning by switching on an app on their um, on their smartphone, and uh, what happens is that uh, any opportunity for some um, inconsistency that the employer might um, have with the employee, um, they'll just switch them off the app. So you know these people wouldn't even know whether they've been terminated or not, other than to say that they can't log on. So I you know, we we say that that's a terrible way to have a relationship with an employee. That you don't, the you know, first have that face to face contact, um, and secondly, you can be terminated without notice, and certainly um, at any any stage if the uh, so-called employer sees fit.
8: Okay, what um, protections does the legislation in the United States uh, cover?
1: It's just come into play. Um, I'm not uh, fully across the whole detail of that, but uh, more than happy to get back to you once the, um, the ramifications of uh, or the whole implementation of that legislation is uh, put forward, what it might mean for America um, and we had to look at that legislation to see how it might translate and apply over here Uh, it might be an opportunity for us to uh, lobby the the respective governments to ensure that people are protected as
8: they go forward. Okay and if we uh, turn our attention now to another campaign uh, which will be the bus drivers uh, strike next week at a couple of locations in regional and suburban um, Victoria so on Monday in two locations the drivers will be taking uh, protected action.
1: Well you'll be happy to know that Union has averted that industrial action. We've had some successful negotiations this week and um, as of um, 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon we've um, got an in-principle agreement with uh, Christians up in Bendigo and also with the uh, and bus lines and Cranston bus lines as well. So uh, there's only uh, one, as I understand, the government, the Latrobe Valley and um, we'll be having further discussions within the next two weeks to see where we go with that. But Again, the um, the bus campaign was a, a, a well-fought-out um, campaign for our membership where they, uh, the ultimate outcome for them was a 4% wage increase per annum for the next um, three years plus a further 1% in the superannuation. For many years, our uh, bus drivers were working off an average weekly wage earnings regime which simply didn't deliver um, the outcomes that we saw that um, people need to, to maintain their lifestyle. So with um, you know, bus drivers... You know, I don't think you would have seen any of them take strike action. and We know they haven't taken strike action for the past 30 years. So uh, the time came for them to um, to have a go at their, um, uh, ensuring that their rights and entitlements and their wages were consistent with what uh, we would say uh, is going to be helpful for them going forward.
8: And it's, it's also a dangerous industry to work in, uh, being a bus driver. I've seen numerous um, incidents of assaults on bus drivers.
1: Unfortunately, yes. And um, we've been running some campaigns in recent years to fully enclose the, um, the bus driver so they're not subjected to people that get on, that um, have a clear intent uh, to do nothing other than to make life difficult for the bus driver, who is just a normal person like you and I, that um, get up each morning and go to work and just want to drive the bus and get people, uh, kids to school, people to doctor's appointments and hospital appointments and things of that nature. But just Some people uh, see that they... Um, feel that they need to abuse them, Um, they spit on them, they throw hot coffee on them, and there was a terrible incident in uh, Queensland where uh, fuel was thrown over a driver and he was set on fire and and unfortunately passed away. So it's 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 an industry that has its um, its issues, that safety is paramount for our bus drivers and we're doing everything in terms of ensuring that those safety barriers that um, aren't in some buses uh, or... uh, More importantly, that the ones that are in buses are suitable to ensure the protection of our people.
8: Okay, how many uh, bus drivers does the Transport Workers Union cover?
1: We have over 4,000 in Victoria, and um, that's spread over a a number of uh, major
8: companies. Okay, I suppose is casualisation an issue issue your union faces? I I guess it is, given the fact there's nearly 50% of workers covered by air in casual arrangements. Yep,
1: there are some casuals in. um, in the, in, the, in the bus industry, but it's um, it's more prevalent in the airline industry, where we have people that are working split shifts in, in different arrangements. And as you can appreciate, um, split shifts in an airline environment is a uh, is a dangerous cocktail for um, safety uh, procedures. And by way of example, if you start at uh, six o'clock in the morning and you finish at ten o'clock, then you've got to go away for a few hours and then come back uh, mid afternoon, and then you know come back again later on. I leave that night. Um, it's just the the uh, it makes your day very long when you've got to. Um, There's no proper parking at the airport. It's all off site, and uh, you can be uh, doing a effectively an eight-hour shift over twelve to fourteen hours. So you do that for three or four days. It certainly takes its toll.
8: And companies obviously use the split shift to avoid paying uh, meal breaks.
1: Oh, and that's exactly right. And look, we accept there are um, opportunities where you need to supplement your full-time workforce to get the job done. Uh, but what we say is not right is where you substitute your workforce for um, full-time employment like um, utilisation of casual employment and permanent part-time.
8: And your union covers the baggage handlers, if I'm correct?
1: Yes, we certainly do. And that's the, um, the instance where what I was talking about is a, a company called Aerocare that does uh, quite a bit of... Um, contract work to our mainstream um, airlines.
8: Okay, so uh, there's obviously a campaign surrounding the uh, baggage handlers and the split shifts?
1: Yep, there certainly is. We call it the safe and secure skies and um, that will be ramping up more in uh, 2020. Um, You might have heard the um, union uh, nationally, transport Union nationally, has got a campaign called 2020 uh, where we have some 220 enterprise agreements all expiring in a um, six-month six window, and uh, we're looking to um, start negotiating negotiating wage outcomes on an industry basis. When you look at the um, enterprise bargaining when it came in in the early 90s, it was enterprise by enterprise, and, and it led to the race to the bottom where companies that uh, weren't unionised like, you know, had a low level of unionism. Uh, their wages didn't keep pace with the... the um, standards of um, some of the multinationals, so uh, we're saying that the enterprise bargaining system is broken, we're looking to replace that with industry bargaining, and uh, people are really uh, taking to that concept.
8: And this, uh, yeah, your campaign, 220 enterprise agreements, all expiring, gives um, strength to the workers in negotiating to the point where they may not have to take action, because if they're...
1: Well, that's correct, and and those, um, those agreements are expiring, are national agreements, so when you look at the, uh, the scope of how many people that covers, it's in the, um, the tens of thousands of um, uh, transport workers.
8: Has there been a history of the uh, baggage handlers taking strike action?
1: Um, not for some time. I was um, in former life. I was a baggage handler myself for Ansett Airlines. And um, you know when the advent of um, enterprise bargaining came in we did quite well out of it in terms of um, you know, the productivity that we traded off the wage outcomes. But there's only so much you can do when you're loading an aircraft. uh, So much weight it can take, so many bags you can put on in a time frame. Um, The expectation of of, uh, some of the airline companies these days is to do it with less people. And if you've got less people, you can imagine the fatigue that sets in. And If you're trying to uh, shift a tonne of uh, freight, it could even be seafood coming from Tasmania, trying to put a tonne on and take a tonne off, all in turnaround time of 35 minutes. Uh, can certainly take a, a big toll on your body if you're doing uh, six or seven aircraft uh, a day in a shift, an eight-hour shift.
8: Okay. What, what other issues are uh, the members of your union uh, face?
1: Well, look, we're always facing issues um, as, as workers, and you know the coalition government certainly aren't friendly to working-class people. And um, you know our intention is to ensure that the wages outcome are um, you know adequate for people to go forward and the occupational health and safety. I um, you know, looked after and you, know, you read in the paper about the coalition government speaking the other day of having an am- amnesty on wage theft. I think that's just a complete disgrace <sighs> that, um, that employers don't pay the appropriate wages and, and even superannuation uh, are now going to have a line drawn through them and um, and then um, start again. I just think that's a, a, a disgraceful way to do business.
8: Well, yeah, surely there's got to be jail time for these bosses that rob workers of money.
1: Well, I think there's, um, you know, there should be a remedy of measures that are uh, put in place. And I think the the first thing would be is that, um, you know, start paying correctly. Um, uh, and then let's see what's led to the, uh, discrepancies of why people aren't being, uh, paid correctly. Now, sometimes it could be an oversight and, uh, you can be forgiven for that. But if it's a blatant, uh, disregard for, uh, making sure that you're abiding by the law, uh, you know, an industrial instrument, well then yes, you should go to jail.
8: And on the subject of wage rises, would all like to be going half as bad as the uh, Victorian politicians?
1: Oh, well, look, um, those um, issues take care of themselves. I'm sure, from time to time, the um, wages outcome, uh, or the remuneration tribunals that make those determinations stood on uh, certain formulas and and certain things they take into consideration, I suppose it's a matter for them to see how that works out. But in the context of um, transport workers... uh, we certainly see the value that the uh, our people put into the job, and uh, and make sure that they um, you know they're remunerated correctly.
8: All right. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning, uh, John.
1: No worries, and um, thanks for having me on, and um, best wishes for
8: the rest of your program. Cheers, thanks.
2: Yeah, hey, and that was John Burger. From the Transport Workers Union Union. Yeah, yeah, interesting, you covered a lot of ground there Marcus
8: Yeah, well they play a key role, don't they, the uh, transport workers, the bus drivers, truck drivers, baggage handlers, yeah
2: Mm. And it's uh, interesting that there's a bit of movement in uh, regional Victoria at least regarding uh, wages and conditions for bus drivers And on the line we've got uh, John Spate from the uh, Fair Go for Pensioners G'day John, how are you?
6: Going very well, mate. How are you going? <laughs> Good.
2: Fair <laughs> um, uh, go for pensioners. You want to talk to us about uh, the campaign that uh, you guys are involved in, in regards to new start.
6: Well, at, at, uh, just before we do that, we had a uh, the last time I was I was talking about superannuation, and and since then there was a uh, investigation in relation to the Royal Commission with the banks indicated there some of the things that we're actually discussing, that um, people were getting ripped off in relation to their yep. superannuation.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were, you. were They heard it first here from you.
6: Well, I don't know. I, don't know <laughs> I think the people are actually in the superannuation funds. They heard it first but didn't really understand what they were hearing. Yeah. And part of that is that uh, the banks are now giving the indication that they're moving away from uh, uh, superannuation. But I think that the government's concentration on going after the superannuation funds that actually benefit the workers the most is the industry funds.
10: Yeah, And they, exactly. they're trying to
6: nobble those. Uh, and obviously, they're concerned that the unions might be have some influence. Now, that's pretty difficult to do when the, the law goes against that, obviously. Yeah. Now, just to sort of let you know, we, as you would know, we had a conference uh, uh, in July, uh, which was well attended, you were the yourself, as you know, and it was talking up in the air, basically is the name of the conference and it was the civil and caring and society and some of the matters that we discussed there were were things like uh, new start and presently, as I understand, new start would cost the government roughly uh, three billion dollars.
10: yep Now you've
6: had the treasurer wandering around bragging how smart the government is that they're going to balance the budget. And it seems pretty obvious that there's a couple of things that are helping them so-called balance the budget, doing nothing about new start and pretending it's it's just some issue that will go away, instead of using it to stimulate the economy. Anyhow, and uh, there are the, 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 there are organisations now that don't normally come together to try and influence the government to actually do something about that. Those people living in poverty. And as a lot of your listeners would know, they may have been may have been on uh, other sort of pensions, and because of the way the governments manipulated the pension system, they've dropped them from a pension on the new start.
2: Yeah, that's right. And there's right.
6: people who've just lost their jobs on new start. That's right. So they're actually living in poverty.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. So that they, the government can. Uh, uh, Save some pennies. So if you think about it, and you start something like thirteen uh, thousand dollars a year, while a, a age pension is uh, twenty four thousand, correct. You know something yeah. of that nature. Yeah, it's so around that Do your do your maths.
6: So and you know that's a lot of money.
2: And then you've and got the government. people. You've got the people on dis. One of the things that's really uh, dis- uh, disheartening is the business about chucking people off disability pension. Correct. Yeah, and uh, considering how difficult their load is, that's really tough.
6: And none of this is accidental. It's a deliberate policy, and the government was also saying how great it was that money was not going into NDIS, about $4 billion. So when you start talking about balancing the budget, in reality, all they're doing is squeezing the people in the the lowest part of the the economy.
8: And there hasn't been an increase They're the ones they're squeezing. And there hasn't been an increase to the new start payment since 1994, 25 years, if I'm correct.
6: Absolutely, absolutely. And when you consider it, there's a, there's a lot of things gone up since then. Electricity, among others, all gone up. And that, and obviously, uh, the, the government, that some of the. Um, People who are running this country had to increase too, as I understand.
2: Yeah, they certainly did.
6: Uh, 12%. they would relate it to New Starters, you notice.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It's pretty amazing. I mean, it's all very well to see it as a bit of, of humour, but uh, in actual fact, these people are riding roughshod over the uh, general community and being diverted. Uh, people are using these diversions, like saying they're going to drug test. People new recipients of Newstart in order to get a poultry uh, subsistence allowance. I mean, well, that, that's just incredible.
6: But you know what that's about? That's just saying to people, well, these people are not worthy of it. Yeah. And there's something wrong in them. Uh, now, that's part of, also, as you would know, from that conference, we're talking about some of the the words in the English that's been used as language in Australia to demonise people by. How we talk about, uh, you know, people, uh, not just people, we don't just use on the doll, but we, we give the impression that those people really shouldn't, they don't really deserve it because they don't do enough to do it and all that business. Now, that's, that's not only that they're in poverty, but they're demonising demean- those people too, which is pretty sad when you start thinking about the so-called miracle election uh, and the Prime Ministers have been virtually appointed by God, and it goes on and on. And on. This nonsense goes on and on. Uh, Frankly, I, I don't actually understand how um, people who talk about religion can relate to what's happened in Australia to the Good Samaritan. <laughs> <Ramble>. Maybe, <laughs> I'm not, wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, mate. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe I've got a wrong interpretation of that, but it seems to me that it doesn't fit. Yeah, no, we need.
2: <laughs> um, tell me, uh, you're an older fellow with lots of experience. Have you seen this kind of pattern before?
6: Not as bad as this. This is pretty serious stuff. I mean, they don't even understand the economy needs stimulation. They think that some tax that the taxes that people are being given, so-called, given back, uh, which will have an effect on services, anyhow. That's a reality of life. Um, that they're going to spend all that money on the economy. I'm not sure of that. I think people are smart. They'll be getting cutting down their debt. That's not going to actually improve the economy. What will actually improve the economy is an increase on new start.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely exactly right.
6: Because those people in poverty, they're going to spend the money, and they're not going to be buying houses or, uh, and using capital gains uh, techniques or negative gear, and they're not going to be. In, they're not doing that. A lot of those people are lucky if they've got. A bed, let alone a house.
2: That's right, and uh, decent food to eat.
6: Correct. That's yeah, correct. That's correct. Uh, so, yeah. uh, sorry, Anne.
2: Yeah, no, go no, go on. I was just going to say. Yeah. Uh, so, FairGo for Pension is uh, targeting uh, our um, joining with other groups of people to actually uh, fight and yes, raise we are, awareness. We,
6: we are, uh, uh, and uh, there's a uh, there's there's campaigns been developed. We haven't finalised ours yet. There's campaigns been developed from ACOS. And other organisations to really focus on this issue. Uh, it might also be interesting to your listeners that uh, Seniors Week, uh, uh, the sixth of um, October, mm. started daylight saving. Some yep. of the uh, so people have to get up an hour earlier, obviously. Uh, that on down at uh, Federation Square, there's a big uh, uh, arrangements there with its tents and all sorts of areas bit of line dancing and all those sorts of things. Uh, there's, uh, we've got a, a marquee down there, so people are able to come down there and have a talk to our people and get some material and facts on, you know, what's happening in society. So that's for your information. It starts about 8.30 and goes to 4 o'clock on that Sunday. Oh, Hopefully it'll be a good day. So, yeah. and uh, I don't know whether three CRs down there. There are, there is a radio station down there. It's, I think it deals with the oldies or the goldies. I think they might call themselves Goldie Oldies or something. Yeah. like But you've got to look That's... after the oldies somehow. You know that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that
6: talking. might be something for your interest, for your, uh, for your people to, um, uh, if, if they've got. If they've got time on that Sunday, they just got to wander around. There's all sorts of uh, organisations there, mainly dealing with uh, senior people. But there's, there's people who participate. There's line dance and uh, uh, classes, and they do their show on, uh, on a big stage there.
2: And that's on Sunday, October the, the
6: 6th, 6th? On October the 6th. And as I say, it's the start of daylight saving, really. That's how yeah. remember it, yeah.
2: Thanks for uh, talking to us today, John.
6: That's okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks, John. Good on you, A weak solidarity, Bricky Team, listener. When the wave of
7: US-phobia rose higher with MPs from across the Canberra political spectrum, the very narrow political spectrum coming under attack for their contacts with the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Capitalist Party, and whether that contact posed a threat to true security, given the U.S. of Capitalist Party controls every aspect of U.S. of life. MP scholarships to the big universities like Harvard, meetings with people close to the U.S. of government, suspected close relationships with the good old CIA, that sort of thing leading to questions over the influence the us has over the true blue aussie economy although they all concede we can attack the us and the influence of its dominant capitalist party without affecting our relationship and particularly our trading relationship and we can only hope the hysteria doesn't make true blue aussies of us background feel uncomfortable why, some even want to stop them buying our agricultural land of which they own so much. Dangerously, in this US-phobia atmosphere, Big Supremo scuttled or Lash Sun, scuttled off to be fated by the senior members of a capitalist party, including the Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor. And their private conversations will certainly soar to the heights of political philosophy as they devour a few hot dogs in the Rose Garden top-of-the-range hot dogs, mind you, and advisers advise scuttle them not to discuss with Donald issues that might upset him, which covers just about everything. And will limit their limited conversation even more, but we'll discover as they shake hands 103 times for the cameras just how warm and close, close, close is our relationship. And it will stay that way as long as you keep obeying our orders. Best orders ever, ever. Uh, Certainly, Donald. In fact, our jumping when you order us to jump expresses our independence in taking decisions based on your ordering us to jump, Scuttle then declared True Blue Aussie's independence. It remains to be seen whether this diplomatic contact with senior members of the U.S. of Capitalist Party will ease the concerns expressed in the U.S. of phobia attacks. We can only hope scuttle them may have seen the risk this risky maneuver in light of that phobia as preferable to being in true blue as these mere school children children led thousands onto the streets of true blue to demand demand how dare they action on climate change when as many as point naught of relevant scientists tell us the proof of anthropological climate change is far from confirmed. The 0.000001% backed up by the entire fossil fuel industry, the entire caring business class party, the entire hayseed and sheepshit party, Lord Rupert of Warping and his entire team of acolytes and since the last election the Socialist Party with its Senate Supremo penny left declaring coal will remain our major source of energy for as far as we can envisage the Earth surviving the non-existent threat. How dare mere children tell adults, mature, mature people like scuttle them and the great corporate fossils what's good for us. It's scuttle them and the great corporate fossils role to tell these children what's good for them. And we all agree what's good for these children is being in their classrooms, learning what really matters in this society and not preventing people going about their lawful business. And worse, that all these pliable adults... From evil unions to well across the social spectrum, pliable adults followed these children. Let mere children lead them in scenes reminiscent of the Pied Piper in reverse, piping them into the into the rising tide. Imagine Donald and Scuttle them condemning this puerile, immature disruption. <laughs> which is probably a tautology, puerile, immature disruption, not just here, but all over the world, wisely saging, children must know their place, and their place is certainly not on the streets, disrupting the economy. What right have they to worry about the world they'll inherit from the fossils? They can start worrying when they're mature, like Donald and Scuttle them. all leading to a UN of the US, of the UN of the World Climate Summit, north of Donald and Scuttle. Them in, New York, which neither will have the time nor the inclination to attend, and why should they? Why waste time discussing something so insignificant, threatening the profitability of the great resource giants over so unproven a theory, and Donald and Scuttle then will be much more productive eating their hot dogs in the Rose Garden? after having to delay the lunch for a small period while staff elevate the tables and chairs to prevent them floating in the waves washing up the avenue. Indeed, taking up issues like climate change is not only not the business of school children or the thousands and thousands of lemmings who followed them yesterday, it is also none of big businesses' business, which they must restrict to the important things in life like profits and their shareholders, this junior minister assisting Scuttle, then Ben Mort on the Planet, lectured the corporate sector. You don't see the government wasting time on irrelevant issues like the end of the world. Ben was extremely convincing. But true to form, the Socialist Party Supremo and would be big Supremo, Anthony All Being Uzi, attacked the government for having no policy on climate change. Uh, and what's your policy, Anthony? Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh Sorry? Uh, uh, uh. Someone should remind Anthony of the trouble Graham Kennedy got into years ago sounding like a crow. Or perhaps he's just a liar bird impersonating the sounds of other creatures like the caring business class party. Still on the Donald and Scuttleman show, the government has has warned true blue Aussie aluminium producers to cut back their exports to the US of, quote, to prevent Donald imposing trade restrictions on true blue Aussie. So uh, unless we're getting this wrong... We impose the restrictions Donald may impose in order to prevent him imposing them. (laughs) Lose, lose. Speaking of, hopefully, lose that, um, hopefully lose, that great Western Sydney make-believe artificial just-for-marketing team must have the most popular player in the competition because whenever that club is mentioned, people immediately say, that Toby Green, he's so popular. We won't bemoan the demise of that team or Toby, but last week we bemoaned the demise of U.S. Ob train killer advisor John Belt on the bad guys with a very bad limerick. There was an aggressive moustache which believed in the bomb and the lash. The relief for the poor is to send them to war. Death for them, for us. Plenty of cash. (laughs) Bet you're sorry I repeated that, but our concern was the pain the merchants of death industry felt over John's sacking stroke resignation. But this week good news. The merchants of death would have been encouraged as the impact of that demise on world peace through war is immediately apparent as evil Iran took advantage of John's absence to attack poor, innocent, just loves, liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi oil structures. And we know evil Iran is the perpetrator because the US Secretary for World State Mike Pompeo or else said it is. Dismissing claims by the evil Houthi who poor, innocent Saudi bombs every day and night that they launched the attack. There's no proof they did it. Mike wanted proof. There's no doubt evil Iran did it. No doubt evil Iran is the evil perpetrator. Uh, And you do have proof of that. We don't need proof. We know. And we're concocting, uh, no, no, uh, we're we're developing, uh, no, no, working on the proof right now. Conspiracy theorists might suggest, look at who benefits from all this. We won't go there. But we're told the inferno wiped out about 5% of the world's oil supplies, as the experts who know about these things predicted a surge in petrol prices for the punters behind the wheel. And I thought, and I'm sure we all thought, listener, that must mean prices will rise by five percent but no day one and oil prices soared by 20 percent and who knows what they will mean at that will mean at the pump when the impact hits but i suspect it well may exceed five percent showing how little we know about how these things work or conversely how we know all about how they work Must be something to do with the economy, but notice when world prices go up, that is reflected at the petrol pump a lot quicker than when the world prices go down. I'm sure there's a simple explanation. On the big business of privatised health, one of the private health mobs is running this ad showing staff, happy, happy staff, lovingly treating patients and such happy, happy patients with the slogan, Uncommon Care. And I thought for once there is truth in advertising because if they do provide the sort of care the ad claims they provide, it would be uncommon care, as a number of inquiries have and are proving. On Truth In, in the truth stakes, new Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country Big Supremo Boris Don't Join Son is throwing down a challenge to Donald, big contender this week at a hospital photo op, when a patient's husband attacked him for grandstanding while the health system is running down. He wasn't grandstanding, Boris objected. There's no press here, he pointed out, while staring at the telecamera, filming the whole encounter. On Truth and Proof, the Feminist Solidarity Award of the Week, A Lay Down Mazzare, one notion star that appalling Hoonsun informing us women lie about domestic violence. Like the US of, or she doesn't need proof. She said it, it, so it's the, the truth. Finally... We were all encouraged by the aforementioned socialist supremo Anthony all speech to a gathering of corporate high flyers, a Business Profits Council seminar this week, telling them he never agreed with his predecessor, Little Billy Shorten Ambitions, quote, business-bashing rhetoric attacking the top end of town. The socialists want to work with business. Anthony gave us all hope. And he, just remind me, is from the left...
0: Good morning.
2: Yeah, that's right. He's from the left. We've decided that you shouldn't call it right wing and left wing. We should call it wrong wing. The wrong. Yeah, the wrong wing. (laughs) And and I was just, uh, uh, Kevin mentioned uh, the um, Boris Johnson, and uh, I was just telling Marcus that apparently it's been reported in The Guardian that uh, Boris Johnson went off to uh, talk to... uh, the leader of Luxembourg, you know, it was a public event and there were about 50 people in the crowd who were chanting, we don't like you very much. (laughs) And uh, it caused him to run off the stage, according to the article. I don't know. I love the chant. We don't like you very much. Hilarious. Uh, Anyway, uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, and uh, we're going to raise the tune now. We've had lots of things on this morning, Marcus.
8: Yeah, we've covered a lot of ground from West Papua to the transport workers. Yeah, yeah. New start, fair go for pensioners.
2: Yeah, before that we went to the climate um, global glo- global day of action for climate, and uh, even a little bit about uh, the dig- digital approaching digital dystopia, and uh, and an
8: update from uh, West Papua, of course, too.
2: Yeah. That's exactly right. And we're going to go to America now. I caught up with uh, Vince Emanuel, who lives over in Michigan, and I asked him a few questions about what's uh, doing uh, the rounds in the media over there and uh, also a little bit about uh, what's going on in his actual activism on the ground. A lot of things have been happening in America. I was uh, wondering if you could give me an idea of uh, what the general... Uh, view of news is at the moment? Not not about fake news, but what is what are they reporting as news at the moment in America?
0: Well, it depends, of course, what outlets you go to. It depends who you're getting your news from. Generally, there's a nonstop uh, sort of avalanche of information about what Trump is doing at any given time of any given day, which is usually something totally goofy or saying something totally goofy and or, you know, enacting some kind of completely draconian or right-wing policy so that's of course that takes place nonstop. i mean some of the bigger issues though obviously the drumbeats are happening uh, for a war with iran this is now the second incident that the united states has tried to portray as some sort of iranian attack even though obviously the japanese uh uh, uh container ship uh owners the corporation who owned that container ship had said that it was not uh, any An Iranian strike And uh, I, uh, Excuse me, I'm sorry um, So in any case, you know You also now have the United States Trying to blame Iran for the latest attack In Saudi Arabia on the oil refinery And of course, the United States For many, many years As I'm sure many of your listeners will know uh, Have been trying to find The elites within the United States uh, Have been trying to find a reason To go to war with Iran um, and, and through proxy wars, of course, have Uh, and, of course, overthrew the government um, in whatever that was, 1953, uh, helped overthrow the government. And so this continues today. Those drumbeats are are definitely uh, taking place in some of the news outlets. But I will say that generally people have been much more reluctant. I think part of that is because Trump is in office. So whenever there's a Republican in office, of course, all of the Small L liberals, all of the Democrats in the United States, all of a sudden become anti-war activists. So, unless, of course, then Trump wants to do something about a current war, which might be one of the few positive things he does, um, which was, you know, potentially hold talks with the Taliban, which would be a good thing uh, to bring the war in Afghanistan to an end. Um, or so, so, so are are you saying North that? Uh, Syria, are you saying you that,
2: that generally speaking, Americans are not? Very happy about the idea of going to another war?
0: Generally, yes. And the polls show that, and the polls also show that that's true among the armed forces, which is also a good sign. Um, And that's even with a very right wing government in power. So that sort of ideology has not translated, I think, in the way that they probably assumed it would. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are weary. Not to mention that, but most of the Democratic candidates who are currently running for president in the primary race have been really forced to take a position on Afghanistan, and most of them have taken the position that they will withdraw troops. Now, whether or not they'll do that is a separate question, um, probably largely based on whether or not their social movements and anti-war movements to pressure them to do so. Though I think in the case of a Warren or a Sanders that they likely would pull out, uh, the, all signs point to— their campaigns being very serious about pulling out of Afghanistan. And it's one of the few powers not one of the few. I mean the executive branch has grown in a lot of ways, executive power. Um but in any case it's definitely one of the things that the president of the United States has uh an extremely large influence and in, in a lot of power over and that's US foreign policy. Um so in that way it's good to see uh Sanders take more left wing positions on US foreign policy and he's been pressured to do so by his supporters. I mean a lot of his supporters are further to the left than he is. Um so, you know, you definitely have that pressure from below. Um but it has not translated in the form of uh, say a real movement that's been out there, but there's the general sentiment in the United States is that we don't want to go to war again. Mm-hmm. I think you know, part of that definitely has to do with the fact that Trump is in office and people just generally do not trust his judgment.
2: Well, there's been this uh, a belief that um, he could possibly get in again. So from your perspective, the election process is already underway, isn't it?
0: It is. Um Yes. Unfortunately, uh, our president is elected every four years, and those campaigns go on for a year and a half to two years prior. So the actual election that will take place between one other individual and Donald Trump won't take place until November of 2020. Um, We are in the primaries to see who the Democrats are going to nominate to run against him. And have you noticed? Oh, sorry. I was
2: just going to say have you noticed any. change in the way the uh mainstream democratic party power brokers are behaving
0: the actual party itself yes but that's because some rule changes took place after 2015 and 2016 the elites within the party not so uh much and the same with the media i mean it is clear that they've been trying to you know undercut bernie sanders at every turn The good news is that he's polling well in all of the states. So the way our primaries work is that just quickly, you know, you go through all 50 states. All 50 states do not hold their primary on the same day. So that campaign goes on. I think the first primary state is February 3rd of 2020, and that's Iowa. And then they go to New Hampshire the week after, and then they go to different states. Some states are sort of jumbled in one day. Um, And then obviously whoever comes out at the end with the most delegates, each state, of course, states with larger populations have more delegates, so on and so forth. It looks like Sanders is doing really well in most of the states when it's polled. So, you know, there's he's him and Warren are really the only two candidates who have a grassroots operation. Joe Biden has an operation, but it's largely, you know, funded from the top down. It's a lot of corporate sponsors. You know, there's a lot of Democratic establishment types and the institutions that support them. So you have some churches, um, some more mainstream black churches, uh, unions and so forth, who uh, definitely uh, uh, will. You know, they're they're the ones who are really propping up Biden's campaign, unfortunately.
2: I've noticed that uh, Yeah,
0: you know, corporations and so forth. I mean, I don't mean to just put it on, uh, you know, these uh, smaller institutions.
2: I've noticed that Pence has uh come out of the shadows a little bit in relation to some of the uh announcements that have been made. Uh is that a bad sign or a good sign?
0: I to be honest with, could you give me an example? Because I'm I'm actually I'm not I'm not necessary. I don't want to know if I, I don't want to misrepresent your question. So no,
2: no. Well, I just noticed that in our media there was Pence. I can't even remember what it was, but Pence was the person who was being uh, quoted uh, regarding a policy regarding China. I believe I think it was, uh, and of course China is the elephant in the room when it comes to. Uh, American uh, foreign policy, really.
0: <laughs> yes, well, certainly in your neck of the woods and definitely globally, that's that's definitely the case. I mean, I don't... As far as the influence Pence has in China, I think it's minimal. I mean, most of the reports from inside the White House show that he doesn't... I mean, he's used in the way to push these types of right-wing policies that they want pushed. But it seems that... uh I mean in the the White House has also been this sort of revolving door of, you know, corporate lackeys and right-wing nuts and uh sycophants that, you know, suck up to Trump and I mean just the most ridiculous sort of crew of people. And so the in some ways policies have been very inconsistent. They've been consistently harsh, but they've been inconsistently harsh if that makes any sense. I mean, there's a lot of people within his administration And on the right, who would like him to move in different directions, you have the religious people pulling at him, you have the libertarians pulling at him, you know, you have corporations and his friends and big business, but then there's even contradictions within that, you know, there's people in the fossil fuel industry who are making a lot of money, but, you know, they're backing Republicans, but then you have people in, say, the renewable energy industry and they're backing Democrats, um, Yeah, well, anyway, one of the the best pieces of news... Pence, to me right now, isn't the primary concern. Though, if he was put in a position to become president, he would definitely be the primary concern and (laughs) in some ways might be even worse than Trump.
2: That's what I was wondering. I was just wondering if uh, the people behind the scenes, behind the buffoon, were uh, showing more clearly to the public than they had been before. That's where that question comes from. Uh, The... uh, interesting thing I think is that uh, someone's pointed out to me that uh, israel if we just the last piece of uh, foreign policy kind of ideas is that uh in our media we've been getting this sort of idea that uh, um, where in the past you could never say anything bad about Israel. Uh, in the mainstream media, that uh, actually there are some questions being asked in America about the American alliance with Israel. Would that be true? Oh, that absolutely. It's not so yeah, sacrosanct. The,
0: the, per- the person who wrote a really good book on this and who was really 10 years ahead of the time was uh, Norman Finkelstein. And I believe the name of the book is called Knowing Too Much. And the subtitle is something like the jewish american love affair with israel is coming to an end and basically what he shows is that over the generations uh jewish americans particularly and they make up a the second largest voting block in or most significant liberal voting block who votes disproportionately democrat in the united states so usually in elections you get about 90 percent of black people in the united states votes vote for democrats and about 75 to 80 percent of Jews vote for Democrats. So they're the two most liberal voting blocks in the U.S. And so you, further, in, that, that increases as the decades have gone on. And, and the polling shows that younger Jewish Americans who play a significant role, uh, even in, you know, say the Democratic Party and, and different liberal type of politics, have been increasingly critical of Israel. Uh, and, you know, you've had great movements out there. You've had the BDS movement on campuses. You've had all kinds of different community groups, um, and anti-war organizations who for many, many decades have made this an issue. And in some ways it's finally paying off. And, you know, it hasn't been discussed at length during the presidential campaign so far. Uh, it will, I'm assuming come up more during the general election, uh, whoever faces Trump, but, some campaigns such as uh, Sanders' campaign, Tulsi Gabbard's campaign, a few other people have made some pretty pretty uh, radical statements in the context of American politics being critical of Israel. And so that's really a good sign. Yeah,
2: that's pretty interesting. The other thing is, um, is it true that uh, the ice, uh, I mean, ice in Australia actually means a really destructive drug So it's very odd that... uh, Oh, same here. Same here.
0: Uh,
2: Well, it's sort of interesting also that uh, ICE is this uh, immigration armed force uh, group that is uh, attacking uh, uh, migrants or...
0: uh, Which was created in post 9-11. It didn't didn't exist before 9-11.
2: Yeah right. So now they're reporting that they're using uh, they're using armed force and also not just overcrowding, but now people are dying in these uh, these concentration camps. I guess you'd call them.
0: Yes, absolutely. I well, don't. Um, how's
2: that playing out in amongst the American consciousness?
0: Well, it's one of the many dozens of insanely brutal things the government's doing right now. So, I mean, yes, I mean, are people upset about it? Absolutely. Um, Do the majority of Americans support it? Absolutely not. Uh, Are there groups working on it? Yeah, there's tons of activist groups working on it. It's not enough people. Um, The Democratic Party has been, I guess, so-so on the issue. I mean, there's been Democratic candidates in a certain more progressive wing of the party that's definitely tried to... Uh, You know, they've even proposed abolishing ICE, which which would be great, uh, especially seeing as the institution didn't exist until 17 years ago or 18 years ago. So uh, I would say that, of course, a lot of this, because most most of this is not being done by, like, you know, militia groups or non-state entities or even I mean, some of them are private contractors, but primarily being done through the state. Um, it's one of the most significant issues of the campaign. And, you know, whoever the Democrat is that gets in, into power, if they get elected, um, that will be probably one of the top one or two issues uh, that will have to be, of course, dealt with immediately. I mean, as far as now, I don't see a uh, social movement with the kind of power that would be necessary to, say, close the camps or anything like that. I mean, there's, there's groups that are doing good work, but, again, that's not enough people. Uh, to develop the kind of power that would force them to change policies while they have Trump in office.
2: The um, the stuff that's happening in England, you know, this idea that there would be a free trade deal with England and America uh, as a sort of a, a way of uh, undermining the uh, European um, financial bloc, I guess, is that playing at, out at all in America
0: in people's there's been a couple. It's funny you mentioned that. I wanted to read. There was a couple articles that a friend sent my way, uh, with a, a headline along the lines of what you're what you're talking about. But I haven't read much about it, and it would seem to me that it's. I mean, is is it on the radar of most Americans? No. I mean, yeah. we don't. It's interesting because the relationship with England, um, I I don't feel as though it's as probably as much at the forefront of the conversation as it is in England in terms of their relationship with us.
2: Yes. Okay.
0: Or with the U S government. And so, you know, I mean, to us it's like, Oh, okay. England, it's one more country. I mean, I'm assuming that's how most Americans would look at it. Of course, the elites in the country would like to maintain a special relationship with England. But I, you know, I, obviously Boris Johnson being in power and so forth is, is not going to help the situation. And so Creating some kind of a new international order, I think would definitely uh require England uh, to change leadership in the United states i mean and that 's not assuming that if Corbyn and Sanders get in everything in the world will be fine but it would it would be a significant improvement from uh, boris Johnson and donald trump
2: yeah no they they're pretty it 's pretty weird, especially with the uh third person in the trio, which is al um uh, Morrison. I mean, you know, these well, it's tall giants. Well, interesting. White, I was going to ask men. you a
0: question, actually, and I, which I ask all my Australian friends, which is How did he get back in? Well, no, it's interesting to me that in the UK and in the United States, you have at least leaders within. I mean, we we all know that the Labour Party is in both countries and that the Democratic Party is inadequate and, and so forth, but it has been interesting to watch a progressive, more left wing of the party grow over the last four years to where now most of the candidates sound how Bernie Sanders sounded four years ago. Um, and the same in, in, in the UK with, with Jeremy Corbyn. And then I always ask my, my friends in Australia, are there, what is happening with the labor party in Australia? It seems like it, it's even drifting further to the right in some ways.
2: Yeah. It's very hard to work out actually. And it's very ineffective. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, lastly, how is it? What What are your uh, significant uh, on the ground in where you are uh, and the work that you're doing? What's the most important things for you at the moment?
0: Well, we live in what uh, the writer Chris Hedges would call a sacrifice zone. I mean, we live where I live is a deindustrialized, um, hi- hyper segregated community dealing with. Extreme poverty, racism, a militarized police force, a coal-fired power plant that exists on the shores of Lake Michigan, one of the largest uh, bodies of fresh water in the world. Um, you know, it's a service sector economy because it's been in de-industrialized since the 1980s. So there's tons of uh, alcoholism and addiction and all the rest. And so, you know, and they're trying to gentrify the city. And we have some of the world's largest polluters, including the largest refinery for tar sands in the Western Hemisphere that's 40 miles down the road, also on the shores of Lake Michigan. We have U.S. Steel and ArcelorMittal, which is a Luxembourg-based steel company producing steel. So you have workers' issues, you have environmental catastrophe. We have, just three weeks ago, the steel mill dumped 200 pounds of cyanide in the water, killing 3,000 fish and closing down the beaches for a week or so. You know, we have uh, police shooting unarmed black people. Um, We have developers trying to, you know, gentrify the city and make it a playground for people from, uh, you know, Chicago tourists. And we have a police force that's out of control. So we're trying to create some kind of mechanism through the city government that could hold them accountable until we can hopefully change the structure of that institution. And, you know, the work, uh, yeah, the work here never ends. It's uh, not to mention, of course, all of this taking place within the national context of Donald Trump and, uh, you know, uh, global uh, ecological devastation and all the rest. So, I mean, there's a million issues that we have primarily uh, right now it's, trying to make significant changes with the police force because that issue resonates most with the black population in the city and in this city uh one-third of the population is black so you know if you want to create diverse movements you have to i think go to where the people are and find out the issues they care about the most and work with them and then try and connect that to other issues it's not a far jump to get people in the black community to uh think about militarization of not just the police but of the you know US empire and a lot of black people have served in the military and so yeah how do we make these connections how do we big build broader movements that are able to pressure uh, elected officials in the streets uh, and also build alternative institutions but then also put decent people in power as long as there's a state around uh, those are those are all the really easy questions that we're trying to grapple with on a daily basis here. So, you know, having the community center has been a blessing and, you know, I think culture plays a a large role in political movements. So if you don't have a social space where people can come and hang out and get to know each other and build trust, I think it's very hard to develop radical political uh, movements um, that will, you know, if they're effective, put pressure on people in power and, People in power go after political movements, so I think you need to build strong social bonds and community and hopefully have a little fun, as Emma Goldman said, while you're doing it. And so we're trying to do all of those things as best we can.
2: Thanks, Vince, for talking to me.
0: Yeah, good talking with you.
2: You too. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We have to say goodbye, Marcus.
8: Thanks, Annie, and yeah, thanks, listeners, and yeah, we'll see you same time next week.
2: That's right. And we'll go out with uh, Pete Seeger, Which Side Are You On?
7: Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County There are no neutrals there You'll either be a union man Or a thug for J.H. Blair Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Tell me minor son he'll be with you fellow workers until this battle's won tell me which side are you on which side are you on
10: See it which side are
7: stand it. Tell me how you can. Will you be a lousy scab or will you be a man? Which side are you on?